Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Over the past four weeks, we've been looking and speaking about and studying from the Word of God about the love of God. At the beginning, we spoke about His love, which is not only boundless, but is a love of being that does. God is love, but He also does love, and He calls us to do the same thing. And remember, we observed from that passage that He calls us to do what? To love one another. And then after that, we looked at how God's love strengthens us. By His love, He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to refer to today. And He also then has His Son abide with us so that we come to know the surpassing knowledge of Christ. And that strengthens us through His love. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at being children of God. God has called us into His family by His love. And we also observed that his love is aboundingly rich. It's not just for us, but it is for everyone. For anyone who will follow his son, Jesus Christ, he then has expressed his love. And so today we come to the last in that series, and I want to talk about marriage. I want to talk about the analogy in scripture of marriage and how God loves us in that respect. You know, next, next Saturday, we're going to have a wedding here. Jason and Louisa are going to be married. It's a wedding ceremony. And a wedding ceremony is the beginning of marriage, but it isn't all that marriage is about, of course. As we stop and think about it, that's what God has done with us in his love. In a wedding ceremony, there are several things that are done before it and during it and then afterward. First, there's a proclamation of love, and then there's the demonstration of love, then there's the declaration of love, and it ends in the fulfillment of love. Let me talk about that in a kind of cultural context for a moment. The proclamation of love. You know, in history, we don't do this in this country that I know of anymore, but there was a a, uh, publishing of the bands. What are the publishing of the bands? That's a declaration that two people are going to be, it's a proclamation that two people are going to be married. And if anybody objects to that then before the wedding ceremony, they're supposed to do so. And in the Book of Common Prayer then, there's a phrase which we don't use anymore in most of our weddings, but it says this, should anyone present know of any reason that this couple should not be joined in holy matrimony, speak now or what? Forever hold your peace. But that's not enough just to have the proclamation of love. There's also the demonstration of the intent in marriage, and there's a symbol. And actually, this comes a little later in the ceremony, but the the demonstration of intent is the exchanging of the rings. The ring, which is circular, which is eternal, and like marriage is of pure gold, the marriage is to be pure. And the exchange of the rings, the demonstration of intent is this. With this ring, I thee wed. With my body, I thee worship. And with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's a proclamation, and there's a demonstration. 
And in the ceremony, there's also a declaration of promise. There is a verbal commitment. And of course, those are the what? Those are the vows. Those usually come before the, the ring ceremony. But it's something like this. I, Jem Spivey, take thee, Beverly Frederick, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for what? Better, for worse. For richer, for what? Poorer. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish from this day forward till death us do part according to God's holy ordinance. And therefore, and there's a quaint phrase which we don't often use, therefore I plight thee my troth. That is, I pledge to you my what? My loyalty. But that's not enough. The proclamation is not enough. The demonstration is not enough. And the declaration is not enough. There then is the fulfillment the fulfillment of love, and that's when we go from the wedding ceremony then to the marriage and the unification. And the unification Jesus speaks about in several of the, in three of the gospels. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and he will then become, he will be united with his wife and they will become one flesh. They were no longer two, but they are now one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man tear asunder or separate. And that then is the unification. It's not just a ceremony. The two do two things. They pour themselves into each other, literally, physically, and emotionally, and spiritually the rest of their lives. They pour themselves out and into the other person. And then they fulfill the vows that they made. And those vows are for better, for worse, in sickness and health, to walk through the hardships of life and the joys of life. You know, God has done very much the same thing with us individually and also with the bride of Christ, that is his church. God has proclaimed his love, the announcement in Jeremiah. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. But that was not enough. The proclamation in the Old Testament was not enough. There had to be a demonstration of that love, and there was a symbol, just as there is the symbol of the ring in the wedding ceremony, there is a symbol of the demonstration of God's love. Now, we're reading this morning from Romans, the fifth chapter, but after the passage that we focus on in verse six, it shows us the demonstration of God's love. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ did what? He died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The symbol in marriage is the ring. The symbol of God's demonstration of his love is the what? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't mean this to sound controversial, but that is not enough. Oh, it is more than sufficient to pay for our sin. It is more than sufficient to demonstrate God's love, but he did not stop there. You see, he went on then beyond that. And he calls the bride of Christ then to be married to the bridegroom. You see, there is a marriage then. There is a celestial marriage, we're told in Revelation. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb 
has come and his bride has made herself ready. And of course, we know that the bridegroom about whom John the Baptist spoke is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The supper is going to be a celebration of the marriage of the Lamb, who is the bridegroom with the bride. And the bride, of course, is the church. And almost every wedding ceremony that I have heard, and I certainly use it in every one of which I officiate, we speak about that from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the, with, with the word, and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she should be made holy and blameless. You see, there is a wedding ceremony that is going to take, a, take place, a celestial wedding ceremony and a banquet. And God, in the meantime, has made terrestrial preparation for that. And that's where we come to the other parts that fill out sufficiently then the wedding ceremony and the marriage. You see, he has gone beyond the first two elements and he has declared his promise. He has vowed to us. He has vowed to give us an eternal inheritance which is reserved for us in heaven. He invites us, just as you invite wedding guests then to the wedding ceremony and the banquet afterward. He has invited us to the marriage feast. And he gives us a promise, a promise of hope, the hope of the glory of God, about which then we heard read from Titus this morning. And he then goes beyond that, finally, and he fulfills his love in the unification by uniting us with Christ and by pouring out his love upon us. So he doesn't just announce his love, and he doesn't just demonstrate his love, but he declares his vow and he fulfills it. And that's what this passage is about this morning. Would you rise as we read the, the passage of Scripture? Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's have a seat. You know, the first four chapters of Ephesians have set the stage for this passage, obviously. It's about justification. That's the summary of the first four chapters. All have sinned and fallen short of this glory of God that is spoken about here in chapter 5. Nobody can be restored to God's presence. No one can enter God's holy presence by his or her own efforts, Paul tells us in the Romans. The only way for that to happen the only way to enter into his presence, the only way to attend the wedding feast then is to be made righteous again and holy without sin. And that comes only by the grace of God. And in the third chapter, Paul says, being justified then as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiatory sacrifice, that is making amends for our guilt 
in his blood through faith. We're justified by God's grace that gives us the faith to believe, and then it is faith that justifies us, not works. This justification and salvation by grace, then, are available to all, not just to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. And God invites, then, anyone who would believe to come into his family, and as we said last week, to become children of God and to attend the wedding ceremony. Therefore, we are spiritual heirs, spiritual heirs of Abraham, who was justified by faith even before he was circumcised. So you see, he is the spiritual father of all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. And then we come to this passage, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. At the beginning of this, we see that we exalt, just as we heard from Titus, just as we heard from the special that the choir sang this morning. We exalt, we praise, we boast then in God's promise. And the promise is this, the hope of God's glory, the hope of the glory of God in verses 1 and 2. We boast about that glory that is ours. And then in verses 3 and 4, secondly, we exult, we boast, we praise how God then strengthens that hope that he gives us. And then finally, in verse number 5, he does that last part. He fulfills his love. He doesn't just announce or declare it. He doesn't just demonstrate it, but he fills it full in verse number 5. So first of all, we exult in the hope of God's glory in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult, we praise, we boast in the glory of God, in the hope of the glory of God. You see, once we had no hope. Previously, we all were sinners and we are at enmity with God. That's what's spoken about a little bit later in verse number 10. Isaiah says this, There is no peace unto the wicked, saith the Lord. At one time, we were all wicked in our sin and could not boast of anything. We had no access to God. But access that was restricted has been opened. You see, the Jew had no no full access except the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies once a year. There was a veil that separated them from the holiness of God. The Gentile did not have access to God because there literally was a wall around the temple. There was a wall that separated them even from coming into the outer courts and certainly not into the holy place. But now we have access to God, you see, in verse number two. We have been introduced We have been allowed to enter by the grace of God as a result of the free gift of Jesus Christ. It is the grace of Jesus Christ and his shed blood that gives us access to the holy place. You see, Christ's death, we know, tore open the veil in the temple, and therefore the Jew had access to the holy of holies, but not just the Jew. Later, we are told in 2 Corinthians 3 that we also have access because the veil has been lifted so that we all have access. Not only that, but the wall that had prevented the Gentile from coming into the temple, the wall has been broken down. And there is no longer any wall between Jew and Gentile, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. So we have access to God. We've been introduced into the presence of God by the grace of Jesus Christ. Once we had nothing to exalt in, 
That word actually means to boast. I've used it a couple of times. It means to glory. It means to praise, to boast. We had nothing to boast about. You see, we are all sinners, Romans 3. And because of that, we have all fallen short of what is spoken about here, the glory of God. We could not approach the glory of God. We were lost and could not save ourselves, no matter how hard we tried. But Paul tells us again in Romans 3, what then is boasting? What do you have to boast about? What do you have to praise yourself for? It is excluded. By what kind of law can you boast? Of what works can you boast? No, you can't. You can only boast in the law of faith. And because we've been justified by, by faith, we now have peace with God. In verse number one, we've been justified by faith. Christ has made the propitiatory sacrifice. That is, he has then accommodated, he has appeased God's wrath against sin. And the guilt that we had at one time has been erased. And in verse number nine, it says that his blood made us righteous. His blood has saved us, and by his life we now live. In verse number two, you see, we have this faith that justifies us, but it's not just our faith. We have been introduced to God by the faith of Christ that he has given us. It is not our faith. It is a faith of Christ. And that faith of Christ that we have then is credited, as it was with Abraham, as righteousness. And therefore, we have become heirs with Abraham, and we are adopted into the family of God. And so now... We have access into the presence of God if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we can boast. We can exalt. So when it talks about exalting in the glory of God, we can do that freely. We can do it in the, in the present because we are reconciled. That's what's spoken about in verse number 11. Jesus has reconciled us and it uses that same verb there. That we can boast in the fact that we're reconciled. But we can also boast about something that is to come. And that's what's spoken about in the main passage today. We can boast, we can exalt, we can praise God for the hope of God's glory. When you look at God's glory in the New Testament, there are four or five aspects of it, I think, that are being brought out here. When we boast in the glory of God, what are we boasting about? First of all, the glory of God represents his power. You see, God was glorified, Jesus says, when he raised Lazarus, I do this to glorify the Father. God was glorified, the Father was glorified when Jesus Christ was raised. So the power of God, you see, is glorified. And likewise, if we follow Jesus Christ, and if we're willing to suffer with Christ, in Romans 8, it tells us, then we will be able to boast of that same power because we will also be resurrected. The glory of God is also his holiness. He is purely holy. We cannot approach him in our sin. But because of Jesus Christ, those who were once sinners and fall short of the glory of God can now enter into the glorious presence of God, into his holiness. His glory is also his reality, his Shekinah glory, his beatific presence, we are invited to enter into the presence of God and experience the beatific vision we saw last week. That, that means that we will, in 1 John, we will be able to see him as he is and we will become like him. 
His glory is his very image, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that becomes ours. So when we speak about the hope of the glory of God, when Jesus Christ then is our redeemer and our savior, and he then comes to dwell in us, then we also begin to be transformed into that glorious image of Christ. And his glory is also about his renown, about his praise. The father then raised the son and put him at his right hand. And he gave him a name above all names. And he invites all of us then who are followers of Jesus Christ to boast in the glory of God by lifting up the name of Jesus Christ as the name above all names. We're given the privilege in this glory of God to praise him and to serve him forever. So we have that hope, you see, that is ahead of us. All of those aspects about the glory of God are ours to claim and to boast about. And then verses 3 and 4, we're told that we exalt in how God strengthens us in this hope. You see, this isn't just an empty hope. He continually strengthens that hope that is in us from week to week, from day to day. You see, first of all, we need to acknowledge what Paul says later in Romans 8th chapter. We know about the love of God, about which we've been speaking for the last month, that what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we begin with that assurance. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in whom? In Christ Jesus our Lord. That means that he promises to walk with us every step of the way. He leads us by his Son, our Savior. He guides us by his Holy Spirit, and he watches over us day, to, day by day. And he promises to be with us. He promises to Israel, and that promise with Israel is still the same. What did he say to Joshua? What had he said to Moses? He said, I will never what? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do not despair. Christ's promise, put it this way, as he gave the Great Commission, he ended it by saying, Lo, I am what? I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And he says it to the church. Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. He is with us this morning. The love of God, we are never separated from that. And he then promises to walk alongside us every step of the way. And then he invites us to walk alongside him every step of the way. Jesus gave us this invitation. He says, come to me when you're what? When you're weary, when you're heavy laden. And do what? Yoke yourself to me. Put on my yoke. You see, for it's light, for it's easy. He invites us to walk alongside him. We're invited, Paul invites us in the name of Christ, to experience the power of the resurrection. But you know what comes after that. To the Philippians, he said, when you're walking with the Lord and you experience the power of your resurrection, you take along with that also the fellowship of his what? Of his sufferings. And that's why this passage is so significant. You see, the love of God never departs. He walks with us and he asks us to walk with him. And as he does that, he walks with us through all of the sufferings and the difficulties of life. We make a vow to our mate that we will walk with our mate through every difficulty, sickness and health, prosperity and poverty and all of those things. God has made the same vow. 
You see, he promises that he will walk through those difficulties. Verse number three. And not only this, but we also exult, we praise, we boast in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings what? Perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. You see, there's the connection with the hope. Yes, there will be tribulations, Jesus said. In the world you will have them. But remember what he said in John 16. I have overcome the world. The Tribulum, most of you know, was a winnowing fork that was used out in, in, the, uh, in the grain house to beat the grain and to separate the chaff from the pure grain. And that's what God promises us. Through tribulation, it will not be to no avail, but in fact, he will use that process then to purify us and strengthen us. And perseverance, the word literally means to stand under, to be steadfast under, to be steadfast under pressure, like a diamond then that is carbon that is compressed into a diamond that makes us more resilient. You see, he promises to do that. He promises to take those difficulties and problems in life and use them to polish us into a hardened diamond that is resilient. For what purpose? So that our character might be proven. And the word that is proven there means that it might be tried. But it's not just that there will be a trial. The implication is then that we will go through the trial and our character will be proven to be good, you see. What's happening in this is we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ, and that will bring glory to God. He, 1 Peter talks about it in the same sort of way. Remember, he says that our faith, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what's happening in these trials and tribulations. And God is walking with us so that we not only endure the tribulation, but we persevere and become resilient and our character then proves the glory of God. So how do these trials strengthen our hope? That's the second point. Well, you know James's passage. Count it a privilege, count it all joy when you encounter divers' trials. Because what? The testing of your faith builds, once again, perseverance. And perseverance then, when it is fully accomplished, then will make you perfect. And you know what that means. It means that it makes us into the person that God created us to be. So James echoes what Paul is saying here. But you know, that's, a, that's about the, the, the result. That, that's about the process of going through the trials and what God is doing with them. But what is not addressed in those two passages is, in fact, the cause and the source of it. The cause and the source of it we have already talked about. In the second sermon on the love of God, remember we talked about the fact that Paul prayed to the, with, with the Ephesians that they might know what? They might know the love of God that then gave them the power of the Holy Spirit, the abiding presence of Christ, and then they might come to know the unsurpassed riches of Christ. It is those things that abide with us from day to day, you see, that sustain us, that strengthen us. The cause for this process then is the love of God that abides in us. And it results then in the strengthening of our hope. When we look at hope in the New Testament, there are about three or four dimensions of hope, I think, that Paul may be alluding to here. Number one, 
The hope that we are promised is in fact the person of Jesus Christ himself. Just a little before the passage that Molly read this morning, it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ who is our hope. So as we look forward to our future hope, we look forward to Jesus Christ himself. A second aspect of hope in the New Testament is growing in Christ. In Colossians, the first chapter, the hope of glory. He uses the same phrase in Colossians that he uses here. The hope of glory, he says, is Christ in you. And he describes that then as being Christ in us who brings us the riches of God's glorious mystery that grow in us. So we have the hope not only of Christ himself, but Christ growing in us and revealing to us the mystery of God's riches. Hope in the New Testament also is the gospel itself. In Colossians, the first chapter, it says that our hope is the good news. The hope that is laid up for us in heaven. The word of truth, the good news of Christ, which assures us of hope. And then finally, hope, of course, is eternal salvation. First Peter speaks about our living hope, which is an imperishable inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. We have this hope of eternal life, and we're heirs, Titus, Paul tells Titus, of eternal life. And finally, this hope then focuses on the appearance of Christ. And we heard about that this morning from the passage it was read. We look forward to this what? This blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So you see in this process with God walking with us and our walking with God, as we go through tribulation, this hope is strengthened and we become confident of all of those things. That Christ is our Savior, that he abides and grows in us, that the good news reserves for us an inheritance in heaven, that we have eternal salvation, and someday he's coming back. And when he comes back and he appears, we will see him as he is and we will be like him. And then finally in verse number five, we're confident. We're confident in God's fulfillment of his love. He doesn't just announce it. He doesn't just demonstrate it. But he does what? He fills it full. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is a hope that does not disappoint. The word disappoint there actually means to shame. It's a hope that by which we're not shamed or dishonored. You see, Christ himself is our hope, and he does not disappoint. In two places in Romans, Paul makes this point very clear. In Romans 9 and then again Romans 10, in a kind of rare uh, way, it doesn't usually do this in his letter in two places, especially that close together. He quotes the same passage of Scripture. He quotes Isaiah 28, and he's speaking about Christ. And he said, Christ is the what? He is the rock of offense. And he is the stone of what? Stumbling. And even though he's the rock of offense and he is the stone of stumbling, if we believe in him, we will not be what? Disappointed. You see, there is no disappointment in the fulfillment of God's love because Jesus Christ is that fulfillment. You see, God has kept his promise. He has poured out his love into us. When you look at the Old Testament and the perspective about pouring out, and you kind of track the way that, that, that phrase is used in the Old Testament, most of the time it's about the shedding of blood. 
blood that has been poured out. The next most numerous usage is about the shedding of God's wrath. And the third usage is about the shedding of the outpouring of his spirit. I think what is happening there is, I know what's happening in the Old Testament. The shedding of blood then is that which is, appeases God's wrath and it results in his then outpouring his spirit. The reason I think that is because when you look at Ezekiel, 18 times, he speaks about the pouring out of God's wrath, the shedding of God's wrath. It's throughout that book, but then when he finishes at the end of the book, he makes this promise about the pouring out of his spirit. I will not hide my face from them any longer, he says, for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Zechariah has a very similar imagery near the end of the Old Testament in a Messianic prophecy. The shedding of blood appeases God's wrath and there's the pouring out of the spirit. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me who has been pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. You see, we see those prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled, of course, in the New Testament, the pouring out. Of course, Jesus Christ began the pouring out, but that was not enough. The demonstration of God's love was not enough. It was then fulfilled then by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Christ's outpouring is on the cross. Paul speaks about that when the Son of God emptied himself of his divinity and then became obedient even to death on the cross. Jesus speaks about it himself at the Lord's Supper that we are celebrating monthly. This is, the, this is my blood of the covenant, which is what? Poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a futility in the pouring out of blood. Think about it. When Christ died on the cross for almost 1,500 years, they had been following the law, and day after day after day after day, there had been the sacrifice of blood, of the blood of, of, of goats and bulls. You know, at the dedication of Solomon's temple, when the ark was brought in, they slaughtered so many animals that they could not count them. When they dedicated the temple, we're told in 2 Chronicles, the 7th chapter, that 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep were sacrificed. It was a seven-day festival, friends. But that means that 20,000 animals were sacrificed daily at the dedication of the temple. And yet, it was futile without Christ. There was so much blood and so much fat at the sacrifice that it, the bronze altar could not contain it. But there's a, there was ultimately a futility in that without the coming of Jesus Christ. You, we know this. You see, Christ's blood was more effective than the shedding of any animal's blood. The animal's blood was shed in order to cleanse the flesh, but we're told in Hebrews that his blood cleanses our conscience from dead works. Once for all, we're told in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, for by one offering, he has perfected for all, the, for all time those who are sanctified. So the beginning of this pouring out that is spoken about in Romans 5, then, is the shedding of Christ's blood, which is spoken about later. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But that is not enough. You see, God took it a step further. There's also the outpouring of the Spirit. Of course, Pentecost fulfilled the, the prophecy of Joel too. But there was a double promise that was fulfilled there. Sometimes we don't see that. In Acts, the second chapter, we're told what happened. 
Therefore, Jesus, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, you see, the promise was fulfilled first to the Son, then Jesus has now poured forth this which you now see and hear. This is a double fulfillment of God's promise, the pouring out of the Spirit for all humankind. When Cornelius and his family received the Holy Spirit, those who had been circumcised were amazed to see that the Holy Spirit had been what? Poured out upon the Gentiles. So this pouring out that we find in verse number five is the pouring out of God's presence in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit today gives us confidence that God's love abides forever. When we are saved, you know, when they ask Peter, what shall we do? And he said, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized, and then you will what? What was the proof of salvation? You will receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are, like we said last week, what? The children of God. The Holy Spirit is the seal of God's promise of our internal inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven, Paul tells us in Ephesians. The Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, assures us that we are abiding in God and God is abiding in us. And in this very passage, the Holy Spirit gives evidence of the love of God. For we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in this passage. Look at verse number five. What fruit do you see in verse number five? Love. What fruit do you see in verses two and three? Exultation, joy. What fruit do you see in verse number one? Peace. You see, the Holy Spirit brings the fruit that is the evidence of God's love. So this morning, as we conclude our series on the love of God, we're reminded of this, that he is inviting us to the celestial marriage feast. We, as the body of Christ, are the bride of Christ. He has loved us with an everlasting love, and he has called us to become the bride of the Savior of the world. He has proclaimed his love. I love you with an everlasting love. He has demonstrated his love. He has made it possible for us to have life through the not just symbol, but the actuality of the cross. He has promised us hope. We have an eternal inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. And he has fulfilled that love. He has gone the extra step to consummate the marriage. And he has filled us with his presence, and it assures us of that hope. He walks with us through every trial, and he strengthens that hope through his love. And he has poured himself out into us through Christ's sacrifice and also the presence of his spirit. What great love is this. He loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him up. He sacrificed his life so that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 926-1785 to speak with a minister. 
If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.